This past Thursday afternoon, I took a few minutes to look at some of the local news headlines and some other more national thing items that have been in the news. And I just want to share a sample of what I saw in about five minutes. A teen was shot at a playground in St. Louis City. A man was shot and killed in North St. Louis. A woman sued a former doctor convicted of distributing child pornography. A Berkeley man was charged with beating his neighbor to death with a baseball bat. And of course, the national news these days is filled with out-of-control inflation, soaring gas prices, 70 shootings in Chicago last weekend, illegal immigration, and the continued outrage over Roe versus Wade. And as I read that, and as I thought about what's going on in our national news today, I came to a very specific conclusion. And that conclusion is this. The world has gone completely nuts. And with that conclusion, I would say we need Jesus more than ever. But as I read those headlines, I thought of how people react differently to the onslaught of bad news. Some just get angry. They get angry and they get hateful. They lash out in anger and they're critical of anyone who doesn't agree with them. Years ago during the Ferguson riots, there was so much hate on social media. And the truth is it came from all sides. I understand people were upset, but as I think back on that, Often what I witnessed wasn't healthy. And it's the same with the current issues today. See, hate is powerful. Hate divides, and Satan loves hate. Now, Christians can certainly disagree with much of what's going on today in our country. But we don't approach it with angry hate. A second response to the daily flood of bad news is, indifference with indifference we basically become numb we give up we don't care all the bad news is just way too much for us to handle so we turn it off and many times we turn off our ability to experience and give compassion sadly some christians have checked out of the world they refuse to engage with the culture that isn't how we're called to live either now, the third response to our culture is what is called righteous anger. It's the anger of God towards sin. It's the anger that knows God is being disrespected, that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. Righteous anger is the anger that stirs people to action. In love, they seek to address the problems in our world. They're convicted in their hearts to do their part to make things better. Well, if you are with us last week, we began a short message series, series titled Summer Loving. We're going to look at love from several different perspectives. God's love for us, our love for God, and our love for other people. With this specific theme, you're going to hear some repetition in the messages. And that's intentional because we need to hear some of these things over and over again for them to sink into our heart, for them to become part of our daily living. 
This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, and in Luke 5 it's a, a heart-wrenching narrative where we see some of those same responses of people to the culture today taking place in this story. If you've got a Bible, you might want to open it to Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. There's Bibles in the few pockets in front of you. And we're going to look at this very familiar story, which shows up in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's a story of indifference and hateful criticism. But more importantly, it's a story of roof-ripping love expressed with conviction, faith, and action. And this morning, instead of simply reading the passage, I'm going to kind of retell this whole story in a paraphrase. And so as we pick up the scene, Jesus was in a house. And he was doing in that house what Jesus often did. He was teaching. And some Pharisees and teachers of the law were there. They had come from all over Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem because Jesus was, he was a hot topic. The religious leaders, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, were at first just curious about this man named Jesus. But they were also forming an opinion of him. And it wasn't a good opinion. Jesus was doing two things very specifically that angered them. First, Jesus was breaking the rules of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, their rules. And then second, he was getting really popular. He was starting to attract crowds. And the Pharisees were very upset with that rule-breaking, and they were extremely jealous of Jesus' popularity. He threatened them. Now some men, in Luke's narrative, he doesn't tell us how many, but in Mark's gospel, he says that there were four of them. These men heard about Jesus being in town. They were aware of Jesus' miraculous healings, and these four guys had a friend that they loved dearly who suffered from paralysis. And they were determined to do whatever it took to help their paralytic friend. And so they carried their friend to the house where Jesus was teaching. But as soon as they got there, they realized that there was a problem. The, the house was packed. People were probably standing outside. The door was filled with people. There was no way in. There was no way to get their friend in front of Jesus. It kind of reminds me of what happens during some high school parties. In my day, I might have gone to one or two, but I assure you, I didn't stay more than a few minutes. <clears throat> well, I maybe went to more than one or two, and I might have stayed a little longer than a few minutes. But some of the parties were kind of like this, and some of the teens here today might know what I'm talking about. And so the typical scenario for such a party is this. Mom and dad are gone for the weekend. And their teenage son or daughter invites some friends over, just a few friends. But word gets out. And before you know it, there's 100 people in the house. They're in the yard. They're up and down the street. Some of them are probably even hanging from the trees. Typically, these parties end with a neighbor calling the police. And it doesn't end well for the teenager who invited some friends over. Now that, in some ways, might have been similar to the scene at the house where Jesus was teaching. But I don't think there was any over-drinking going on, and there were no teens making out in the bathroom, and no police, just Pharisees. Now as these friends approached the house, seeing that crowd, you know, a lot of people would have just given up at this point. They would have told their paralyzed friend, you know, we're sorry, we, we tried. 
It's just not going to happen. There's no way that we can get in this house. But these are the guys are the kind of friends that you'd like to have. They love their friend way too much to be stopped by a crowd. You know, maybe you've got someone in your life that you love that much. You would do anything for them. And they'd do the same for you. Cherish those relationships because they don't come along that often. Well, anyway, we're not sure how it happened, but evidently one of those friends saw some outside stairs that headed to the roof of the house. And he got an idea. Now, such stairs were common in the ancient Near East. So what the guys did then is they wrapped their friend tightly to a stretcher and they carried him up to the roof. But there was still one obstacle. One obstacle between their friend and Jesus, and that was the roof. Now, in those days, a roof consisted of parallel timbers about two to three feet apart. And then sticks were laid across at a 90-degree angle across those timbers. The entire surface then was padded with reeds and thistles and twigs and was often overlaid with about a foot of packed-down dirt. We're told that this particular roof even had some clay tiles on it, which were less common during Jesus' time. And so these four guys began digging through the roof. The people inside that house had to wonder what was going on. Imagine their surprise as roof material starts to fall from the ceiling and sunlight begins to show up. Once the opening was big enough, the paralytic was lowered down in front of Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I read this narrative, about this point, some questions come to mind. What was the owner of the house doing? What was he thinking or she thinking? Were they calling the police? You know, maybe this school story would end like a high school party with the police showing up. Luke doesn't tell us. But in, in what comes next in this narrative, we're going to touch on a topic that we discussed last week. The first thing we're going to talk about is what love doesn't look like. And our approach is going to be slightly different. In this scene, the Pharisees clearly show, you, show us what loving, not loving looks like. The Pharisees were critical. They were even hateful. They showed indifference. None of the gospel writers in this passage suggest that the Pharisees did anything at all to help the paralytic. They just sat there. They didn't even offer any prayers that we know of. They didn't encourage Jesus to do something to heal this guy. They offered no words of compassion. They were indifferent to the suffering of the paralyzed man. And I hate to say it, but we've probably all done the same. We've had those moments in life where we were just indifferent. We did nothing to help someone or to help a situation when we should have acted in Christian love. With the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that day, though, they were more interested in getting some dirt on Jesus than they were in this man. They wanted to bring Jesus down. And interestingly, Jesus willingly opened up the door for their attack. He wasn't going to back down to these self-righteous men. Luke records Jesus' first words to the paralytic in verse 20. Jesus said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. I guarantee you those words got the attention of the Pharisees. These Pharisee guys were bright, you know. They had this ability to put pieces of information together 
it was just simply astounding. Here's how their thinking might have gone. They knew that only Jesus could forgive sins. And if only God could forgive sins, and this guy Jesus forgave the man's, man's sins, then Jesus must have been declaring that he was God. D- do you see the absolute brilliance of them being able to put this all together? <laughs> it gets even better. If Jesus was claiming to be God and he wasn't God, which they didn't think he was God, then his words were blasphemy and Jesus deserved to die. Their, their train of thought led them to a conclusion that they were hoping to find. But honestly, though, you've got to hand it to the Pharisees. They realize what so many people today don't get. A lot of so-called smart people today say Jesus never claimed to be God. The Pharisees realized what he was claiming. And the truth is, is that Jesus made that claim many times. Now, the Pharisees at this moment didn't want to openly share that conclusion that they had drawn, so they muttered under their breath. Instead of hoping for something good, a miracle, they were harshly critical. And Luke tells us that Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he challenged them. He said to them, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Arise and walk. This probably blew the Pharisees' minds. Because if you think about it, If Jesus had just said, your sins are forgiven you, that might have in some sense has been the easier thing to say. Because who could tell if the paralytic sins were forgiven? How would they know? But if Jesus said, rise and walk, and the man didn't get up, it was all over. News of Jesus' failed miracle was going to spread like wildfire, and his ministry would have crashed to an end within a few days. And just in case anybody in the house missed the point, Jesus continued talking. And he said, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. This was a huge moment. First off, Jesus was making it crystal clear that he is one with God, and then he proved it. The paralyzed man stood up, picked up his stretcher, and went home glorifying God. I can just imagine that he and his four friends were laughing and singing and dancing all the way home. They probably told everybody they knew about it. But the takeaway we see from the Pharisees is very clear. Love is not expressed in being overly critical are in indifference and doing nothing. Now in this story, as in every story in the New Testament, Jesus gets the glory. Jesus is the hero as he should be. But it did all begin with four guys having a ripping love for their friend. They literally tore off a roof for their friend. Their love was expressed in their conviction. Jesus was their only hope. They were convinced Jesus was their only hope, maybe their last hope, for their friend to be healed. They trusted that Jesus was something special. We don't know if they really understood who Jesus was, that he was the only way to be made right with God. They simply wanted their friend healed. Now the disciple, Peter, takes that same conviction, but he takes it to its full meaning in Acts 4.12. He wrote this, he said, And there is salvation in no one else, For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
that names Jesus. Paul then, in Romans 4, shows us where that conviction leads us to. He says, for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off of Christ, if that would save them. In other words, Paul knew how important the message of the gospel was that he was willing to sacrifice himself so that some other people could hear it and be saved through Christ. Peter and Paul were convinced that Jesus is the only way to spiritual healing. He is the only way to be saved from the punishment that our sins deserve. And, and we can see that same type of conviction today when we have someone we love that's terribly sick. When that happens, parents, spouses, friends will do whatever it takes to get their loved one to the best doctor and get them the best medical care. They won't let anyone stop them. They won't let anything stop them. They pray without ceasing. And such conviction is born out of faith. The friends of the paralytic believe Jesus could heal their friend. Their faith is defined in Hebrews 11.1, 1, a great passage which says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We know that faith trusts that Jesus is Lord. The faith of these four men was like that of a Roman centurion in Matthew's Gospel. The centurion came to Jesus to ask him to heal his servant. Jesus told the centurion, he goes, I'll come to your house and I'll heal him. But the centurion's reply was astounding. He said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go. And he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And I say to my servants, do this, and he does it. Jesus was amazed by the centurion's faith. The centurion trusted that Jesus' word, that at Jesus' word, his servant would be healed. And he was. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we have a faith that stakes its claim in Jesus being the only way? Do we demonstrate our, our faith in a willingness to rip off a roof for someone that we love? Do we trust in Jesus to help us get us through any trouble the world throws our way? paralytics friends had such faith their faith drove them to action they knew they couldn't heal their friend they'd probably gone to doctors they would probably tried everything that they could do but they were willing to do their part they committed actually if you think about it an act of vandalism to get their friend to Jesus now I'm not suggesting here this morning that anyone intentionally break the law for a friend and if you still decide in your heart to do that and you get caught, please don't say, my pastor told me to do it. I don't think that's going to help the situation. But, but a roof-ripping love means that you and I aren't afraid to act. We'll do whatever it takes for someone we love. There was more than one paralytic in the house that day, though. 
the religious leaders, they suffered from spiritual paralysis. They were so threatened by Jesus that they couldn't see who he was. It seems like they even missed the miracle. And sometimes you and I can be spiritually paralyzed. God calls us to act. He puts something on our heart to do, and we don't do it. We might lack conviction. We might lack faith. When it gets down to it, it's just a sign that we trust in our own abilities more than we trust in God's ability to work through us. We, we act in our own strength because that walking, that taking a step of faith seems just a bit too risky. Well, I want to tell you, if you trusted your life to Jesus and you believe God is calling you to do something, God has put something on your heart, do it. Take a step. Pray. Then take another step and pray some more. Faithful Christians act. They don't just sit back. We do our small part because we know that God is responsible for the results. We, we've seen this several times, or we've talked about it several times the last few weeks. We act, but our motivation is always in love. Many of you have probably heard the amazing story of a 14-year-old named John Smith. His story happened at, in 2015 at Lake St. Louis, and it was made into a movie titled Breakthrough, which came out in 2019. If you remember the story, on January 19, 2015, John fell through the ice at Lake St. Louis. He was submerged for about 15 minutes before the emergency workers could get to him. John was then given CPR for 43 minutes, but still had no pulse. At the hospital, the doctor was about to give up. He had never seen anyone survive more than 25 minutes without a pulse. He prepared himself to give John's mom the bad news. Right about then, John's mom, Joyce, came into the room, and she saw what was going on. And her reaction was to start praying loudly. She prayed, Lord, just give me back my son. And seconds later, John's heart began to beat. John still wasn't out of the woods. There was obviously the possibility of severe brain damage. Five pastors gathered in the boys' hospital room to pray. One of them said he saw a vision of angels in the room. And in time, John began to recover, but the miracle was truly realized later. It happened the day that John walked out of that hospital with no apparent signs of his near-fatal experience. That's him and his mom on the screen. John's mom had a roof-ripping love. She did her part, her part in praying to our Heavenly Father, and God answered her prayers by restoring her son. And this is just a great, amazing story. Just as I was sharing, I got goosebumps on my arms. Maybe it brings a tear to your eye. But the thing is, is sometimes when we hear a story like this, it, it can also result in hurt. We might ask, well, why didn't God heal 
the person I love. Why didn't my friend turn his life around? Why is that relationship still broken? Why can't my life be different? Why can't my life be better? We have so many needs in life. Many of them are legitimate needs. And sometimes when something like this happens, when the prayer doesn't get answered the way we hope and all our efforts seem to be futile, we might wonder, maybe, maybe as Christians, maybe we didn't have enough faith. Or maybe we didn't do enough. Or maybe we didn't pray hard enough. And, and if you've ever been there, if you're there right now, I want to tell you something. Don't go there. Don't beat yourself up. We are called to act. We are called to pray, to love, to have faith. And even if we could do those things perfectly, and, and we can't, we don't control the results. And Jesus' healing of this paralytic, it wasn't as much about what those friends did, but what they did was great, but it was so much more about what Jesus did. The friends ripped off a roof. Jesus provided a miraculous healing. You know, in, in love, you may have ripped off a hundred roofs, and you never got the answer that you wanted. And I don't know why. I do know this, that second-guessing God gets us nowhere. I do know that even though that paralytically was physically healed, he still went to the grave like everyone else. See, the greatest healing of that day and the greatest healing that we can ever experience came in Jesus' words when he said to that man, man, your sins are forgiven you. Because he had faith in God, the man was spiritually healed. His sins were forgiven, and he was given new life that day and for eternity. Our responsibility is to love. We are to love with a love that is willing to rip off a roof for someone we care about. We are convicted. We have faith. We know God loves us, and that no matter what happens, that he's going to be with us. He's going to act according to his will, even if we don't understand the results. There may be times when we don't understand that our love doesn't seem to make a difference, but you know what? We never stop loving. And we trust in God. Since late spring, we've been praying for five. We've been praying for five families who God is calling us to love in Jesus' name. There are five families we desire to see God move in their lives. We may know these families. We may not know them. But we pray and we're willing to act in faith with strength and conviction. And so, I ask you this morning, who do you need to love with a roof-ripping love?
What are you willing to do? How much are you willing to trust God? Is it these five families? Is it someone else in our life? I just hope the Holy Spirit convicts you and me. And I trust God will give you the faith to act. And I trust God will do what is best according to his will. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about this story of these guys who love their friends so much that they weren't going to give up, it reminds us of the love that Jesus had for us. He gave it all. He gave it all to a bunch of people that didn't deserve his love. He asked for forgiveness to the very people who put him on the cross. He went to the cross voluntarily so that our sins could be forgiven and that our relationship with you could be restored. And Father, we know that, we've, we've heard that. But help us to see what an amazing display of love that is. Help us to come before you on our knees in thanksgiving. And help us to be a, a people who can love with that same convicted, faith-filled love for those that you've put in our lives. May we give them everything we've got as we worship you with all that is in us. We pray together the words that are commonly called the Lord's Prayer, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please stand as our worship team comes up to lead us in our closing song.